Today, uh, let us turn to Hosea chapter 9. So turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 9. We continue our study uh, today with verses 10 to 17, Hosea 9, 10 to 17. As you get there, you know, the classic trait that we consider about God, and this is the classic in, uh, in culture around us, right? The one that is so emphasized always is love, right? God is love. Uh, the letter of First John describes God this way, and, and twice in chapter 4, in First John 4, 8, and in First John 4, 16, and I'll read that for us. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Right? God is love. Now, some take this trait of God and exclude all else. They think that God is only love. But if we take God is love alone, we no longer have the God of the scriptures. We have the God of our own devices, our own imaginations, our own creation. Because God is love, but God also hates Now, that's not something we typically uh, promote, right? You're not going to see that on the Christian Hallmark card. Uh, Happy birthday, God hates you. You know, we, we won't see that. But we have to ask this question. How bad must sin be if it makes God who is love hate? How bad must sin really be for God to hate it? And that's the question we're wrestling today. And I want us to see in our passage in Hosea 9 that sin is detestable in the eyes of the holy God. Sin is detestable in the eyes of the holy God. So let us read our passage today, Hosea chapter 9, starting in verse 10. And this is God's word. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. And this is God's word. Right? Hosea, his ministry, his mission, his prophetic mission is to the northern people, the kingdom, northern kingdom of the people of Israel. Uh, he is calling them to repentance. 
He wants them to turn from their sinful ways and to return to God. Because they had long lived in spiritual adultery, right? They were worshiping false gods. They had co-opted false gods into their worship of the one true and living God, right? So, so there was portions where, yes, they would give lip service to the worship of the one true and living God, but they would also add in other gods, other false gods, the gods of the nations, in order to appease and get what they want, to uh, be fertile and have a good harvest. They had broken the covenant that they had made with God by turning to these false gods. And the message of Hosea hits hard, right? It, what, what I just read in Hosea 9, that's hard stuff to hear. And God presses upon the people again and again. He warns them a present judgment. He speaks from on high to what end? To get them to remediate their ways. To get them to repent, to turn from their evil ways. And neither God nor Hosea holds back, and we see that in our passage today. God had promised curses upon his people from, for straying from his law. His holy jealousy will allow nothing less. Immediately before our passage today in verse 9, we see this, right? They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. They are totally depraved. And that day of Gibeah goes back to the book of Judges and the heinous sin that one of the tribes committed uh, in that time. But he says he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. So as we come to our passage today, that's what we're finding. We're finding out what is the punishment of God for their sinfulness. And let's see first from delight to detestable. And that's in verse 10, from delight to detestable. And we open up and we, our passage begins with kind of two metaphors. And the first is grapes in the wilderness. And the second is the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. We have these two metaphors, grapes in the first figs. When we talk about the wilderness, right? And so when he says like grapes in the wilderness, we're talking about desert wilderness. And so that means what is there in the desert wilderness? Not a whole lot. One thing you certainly don't expect to find in the desert wilderness is a grapevine. Because grapevines typically need care, consideration, water, you know, stuff you don't often find in the desert. You certainly would expect to find grapes. And then this issue of the fig tree. Uh, I'm not sure if you enjoy figs. They're not great. That had a fig newton before. It tasted like dirt. So, you know, there you go. You can have that. But when it's all that you have, right, it's a delicious thing. And these first figs are going to be what's kind of left over, remnant from the last season that hadn't fully ripened, that hadn't fully come to, uh, fully made into fruit. And so the first figs are the first uh, figs that you get of the season. And then the tree grows and it blooms and then uh, the the rest of the kind of harvest of figs come in. But those first figs would be uh, delicious, surprising, right? This isn't, where where could you go and get figs in this day? To the fig tree. Can't just go down to Kroger, right? They don't have Kroger's. They don't have the fruit whenever they want it. They don't have greenhouses. So the first figs were something special, unique. Grapes in the wilderness are special, unique. 
And that's what the point of these metaphors is. God is saying of Israel, right? Israel, of his people, they were special and unique. Uh, Moses sings about this as such in Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. Listen to what Moses sings. This is the song of Moses and this part of it. He says, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Right? Doesn't that sound beautiful? Right? God found the people of Israel in the desert. And he encircled them. He cared for them. He loved them. He provided for them. He, he delighted in his people. He rescued them out of slavery, right? Out of pain, out of suffering. And he was delivering them unto the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of bounty, uh, especially stark bounty when compared to the desert wilderness, right? Again. The people of Israel were a rare jewel, a special people for God alone. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let me pause here and say that God delights in you. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, God delights in you. God loves you dearly. And that's just not me saying that. Look at what he has done for you, beloved. He has given his only begotten son. He has given his one and only son, so that you might be uh, restored in relationship with him. He loves you. He delights in you. Uh, the words of Jesus attest to such. He, the words of Jesus in, in Luke 15, we have three parables, all talking about the joy of heaven when a sinner repents. And I want us to look at the end of each of these parables and see what Jesus says. So Luke 15, 7, this is the point of the first parable. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Here's the second parable, the, the meaning of the second parable. Luke fifteen ten. just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the third parable is the one we would know most of all is the parable of the prodigal son. And the father explains, and Jesus wants us to understand, this is what, this is what God the Father, what he bears towards his people. Listen to this at Luke fifteen thirty two. The father is speaking to the other son who is a little angry that his brother, uh, who went out and spent all his inheritance and uh, lived a debaucherous lifestyle, was welcomed back with celebration. But listen to what the father, how the father instructs the other son. It was fitting, right? It is right. It, is, it, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What joy in heaven when a sinner repents. What joy in heaven when the children of God are declared to be such. So, brothers and sisters, take that encouragement this morning. God delights in you. He has joy over you. Heaven rejoiced when you were saved. And that joy doesn't uh, diminish. But for the people of Israel, there is a problem. 
Hosea back in Hosea 9.10, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Now we've seen this in Hosea before in which he'll mention a place, right? We saw that even in verse 9 of chapter 9, Gibeah, a place. And that's supposed to be a code word for us to understand what is going on in Hosea's own day. So what I mean by that is, Hosea uses these events from history and pulls them forward to his present time and say, you remember what happened then? Well, that's what's happening now. What did God do then? Because I'm going to tell you, God's going to do the same now. So what is the story of Baal Peor? Well, it's found in Numbers 25. It's also a part of a psalm, Psalm 106, 28 and 29. Psalm 106, 28 and 29, but I want us to look at that story from Numbers 25, and you're welcome to turn there if you want. I'm going to look at just the first three verses, but there's more to the story than that. I want to summarize some of it. Numbers 25, starting in verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Right, so to give some context here, the people are wandering in the wilderness. This is before they enter into the promised land. And as they're staying in a, a, a location, as they're staying in a place, uh, the people of Moab come to them and they start joining together. They start committing adultery with one another. They start uh, worshiping their gods the people break covenant with God, right? They break faithfulness with God. And the result of that incident was that God's anger is poured out in a plague and 24,000 people die because of the sin. And the only thing that stays the hand of God is that there, as, and here's the scene, right? God is talking to Moses and to the other priests. God is God is directing them, their attention to this evil, to this sin, to the consequences of the sin. And as the priests are there weeping over what is taking place, one of them looks up and sees a tent. And there going into the tent is a man, a chief of the people. And there going into the tent with that man, the chief of the people, is a woman of Moab, not his wife. And they go into the tent and they're they're going to have some fun. Except for one of the men, Phineas, one of the priests, sees this abomination happening. The zeal of the Lord consumes him. He grabs a spear and he goes and kills them. Now that to us seems like, wow, that's harsh, man. By the way, don't worry, I don't own a spear. So. Right, that's harsh. But what they, what that man, that chief of the people of Israel was doing was committing heinous sin, breaking covenant with God. And the wages of sin is death. And sometimes we just take that to be kind of this figurative thing. But often it is quite literal. Right? So this, though, stays the hand of God. The plague stops. Still 24,000 people are dead. And God blesses Phineas for his zeal. 
Hosea reminds the people of Israel in his time of this incident, I think, for at least two reasons. The first is that the people of Israel have always been unfaithful. The problem in Hosea's day is not a new problem. It's not something new going on. You know, it's something that has happened from before they were even in the promised land. The people have been turning away from God. Uh, just, just one instance of this in Deuteronomy 31.29. Deuteronomy 31.29. Here's what Moses tells them at the end of his days. Deuteronomy 31.29. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Right? Moses says, I know what you're going to do because you couldn't even maintain fidelity to God for a couple weeks, for a couple moments. I mean, think about it. When Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, receiving the commandments of God, what are the people down off the mountain doing? Gathering together gold so they can make a golden calf and they can worship it as God. Or worship it as a, a proxy of God, right? As an image of God. They don't even get out of the, the covenant grounds before they break it. And Moses says, I, you will act corruptly and turn aside from the way. And this, by the way, is a reminder to us that something more is needed in the hearts of the people of Israel. Something more is needed in our hearts. The second reminder that Hosea uses this for, I think, is is what does it take to stop the plague? What does it take for God to abate his anger? A quick and harsh action against sin. What does Jesus tell us to do? If our right hand sins, Mark 9, 43 to 48. Mark 9, 43 to 48. Listen to this. How serious should we take sin? How serious should the people of Israel take sin? Jesus speaking says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now we know that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, right? In exaggeration. Because guess what happens if your hand sins and you cut it off? Your other hand will also sin and what are you gonna, how are you going to cut that one off, right? It's, it's exaggeration. But do you see, do you get in those words the understanding of how bad sin really is? Sin kills. Sin is detestable in the eyes of a holy God. And God's not going to put up with it. He is patient. He is merciful. He forgives. He shows grace. But never mistake any of those kindnesses towards you as a sign that sin doesn't matter. 
the people of Israel devoted themselves to a thing of shame. Also, interestingly here, uh, Hosea may have coined a, a phrase when we see that word of shame in reference to uh, the false god Baal, is that it seems that later Jewish writers adopted that same and they started calling the false gods shame. Sorry, right, this is something that is deep and great. It's shame. It's shameful. They came to Baal Peor and consecrated. They anointed themselves unto. They devoted themselves. They they pushed their whole being after evil things and they became abominable, detestable, like the thing they loved. God, who had delighted in his people, delights no more. Now he finds them detestable. The people had separated themselves from God and joined themselves with false gods, right? From the very beginning, this was their pattern. And here it is in Hosea's day, and there is nothing new under the sun. So we go from delight to detestable. Now let's look at from blessings to barrenness in verses 11 through 14. From blessings to barrenness. Ephraim's glory will go. And likely this is in reference to God himself. God will go from them. Uh, If you look at the end of verse 12, woe to them when I depart from them. Uh, Again, this is a poetic way of saying there's, there's a linkage back to what we're looking at in verse 11. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. That is, Yahweh will fly away from them. The glory shall depart. We could go back to 1 Samuel and we see uh, the glory of God departing. Uh, We have the story of Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, the high priest in 1 Samuel. And if you remember there, God tells Eli that he is going to die. He has allowed his sons free reign of sin. and And because of that, God will punish Eli. Not only that, not just Eli is going to die, but his sons are going to die too. It's going to be terrible. It's a terrible judgment. Uh, one to which Eli says, well, may what God do what God does. And he doesn't seek to uh, change his son's ways. The people of Israel, though, they go out to battle. They lose the first match. And so uh, they entreat Hophni and uh, Phinehas to come and to help them, to bring the Ark of the Covenant to them. Because if the Ark is there, They have to win. Uh, The ark becomes kind of like a magic totem. And as they go out thinking they would win the battle, they don't. The ark is captured. It's carried away. The sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die in the battle. Eli, he's back home. And as the messenger comes to him, he's sitting in a chair. And the scripture is very... very vivid with the description of who Eli is. He's a fat old man. His eyes are glazed over, uh, probably with cataracts or something of the sort, so he can't see. The messenger tells what has happened, and he falls back in his chair, and he breaks his neck. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Eli is dead. The punishment of God is sure. And as the message uh, propagates, one of the son's wives, who has been pregnant, starts to give birth. From the stress of everything, the scripture seems to say, from the stress of everything, she starts to give birth. In 1 Samuel 4, 20 to 22, 
wants to look at that portion, what she says, what this, this woman says. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. Right? That's a happy occurrence. Except for her husband's died. Her father-in-law's died. And the ark is captured. Uh, the scripture says, But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod, which by the way, don't name your child Ichabod, right? That's a name just strike from the list. You'll give him a complex, I can assure you that. Right, the glory has departed, Ichabod. And here we find in verse 11 of Hosea, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. Ichabod. The glory will depart. God won't be with his people any longer. God is going to leave his people. If we go back to the names of the children of Hosea, right? Loami, not my people. You're not my people and I'm not your God. That's what God proclaims to them. Not my people. But more than that, God will turn their blessings into barrenness. Look at what we see here, right, at the end of verse 11, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. There will be no children in the land. They will be barren. They will no longer be fruitful and multiply, right? Now what's going to happen to them? They're going to be barren and decimated. And realize that the idols that they worshipped, right, so the false gods that the people worshipped were supposed to bring fertility, They sacrificed to these false gods because they thought that that is what made them fertile, to have many children and great harvest. Even in the practice, and this did happen, where children were sacrificed to these false gods, the point of that sacrifice is that it would appease the god, and then the god would be compelled to give you more children. And what God is proving here is that the false gods don't bless anything. It is he alone who blesses. And he alone who now brings barrenness to them. More than that, in verse 12, we see, Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Even if they were to have children, they would be removed and taken away. And this was reminiscent of what God said he would do to the grain in Hosea 8-7. Hosea 8-7, where God says, even if, even if there was some grain, even if there was enough to make flour, the, an enemy is going to come and take it. You're not going to have anything. And so, verse 12, woe to them, woe to them when I depart from them. Woe, sorrow, lamenting, terror. Whoa. Verse 13, as we continue, we come to another metaphor. Ephraim, as I've seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. This is a difficult verse in the Hebrew, and you can tell that if you're reading out of a different, uh, a different translation. That's the ESV that I just read. The ESV chooses to describe Ephraim as a young palm, but the word that's actually there is like the city of Tyre. So in your translation, you might see a reference to the city of Tyre. For instance, the New American Standard reads this way, Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. 
but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. The sense is something like this. Both Ephraim, that is the the people of Israel, and Tyre, the city, were planted in pleasant, good circumstances. They were were both given blessings. Now, Tyre is an important city on the Mediterranean. It's a very large, old Phoenician city. It was so one a a prominent city. And we see it come up in the scriptures uh, in a number of places. And it, too, was a place where they worshiped false gods. It was a place of child sacrifice. That is, that, that was their practice. They sacrificed children, their own children. And God says it would likewise be a place that would be visited for punishment. The end of that verse there, the end of verse 13, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Uh, it's, we can understand that in a couple ways. And, and the, the language there could mean something like, and Ephraim will lead his children out to the murderer or to the slayer. And that is a reference to the god Baal. Baal was, was known as a slayer or a slaughterer, a murderer. And so it could be a reference to uh, perhaps child sacrifice. Israel is going to sacrifice their own children. Maybe in desperation, right? As things are turning darker and darker, they say, well, let's just sacrifice little Jimmy because maybe God will listen and he will restore our blessings. It could be a reference to the coming armies of the Syrians. They're going to lead their children out to slaughter. War is coming to the land and their children will be slaughtered. And anyone you want to take it. We have to understand right, that there is a reversal promised here from blessings to barrenness, from blessings to bereavement. The people who were well blessed by the Lord, God would have those blessings removed. And understand this, right? Children are a blessing. Uh, Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Right? Classic, classic verses here about the blessing that are children, right? But behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now I'll say this to you children. Be a blessing to your parents. Be a blessing to your parents. Don't be foolish. Don't become a vexation. Obey them. Honor them. Heed their words. Be a reward to your parents. Bless them as surely as God means for you to be a blessing unto them. Help them out. Encourage them. Thank them. Children are a blessing. But sadly, the people of Israel would no longer know that blessing. This is one blessing that the people of Israel would no longer enjoy. We come to verse 14, and this is an interjection by Hosea, right? So this is Hosea speaking now, and he says, Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Hosea prays here. And what does he pray for God to do? What does he pray that God would do for his fellow Israelites? What will God give them? A miscarrying womb and dry breasts. This is the 
right? The utter barrenness, uh, the removal of children. Should, should God look at their sacrifices? Should God look at their sin and reward them? No. He has to punish them. And Hosea prays. He calls the covenant curse upon them. He entreats God to do what he has promised. He asks God that the people would be unable to support life. And this is difficult stuff, right? This is, this is righteous anger on the part of Hosea, right? This is righteous zeal. Sin is evil, and God's prophet cannot stomach it anymore. Right, He sees what the people are doing to his horror and to their shame. And there are occasions in this world when such heinous evil must be decried. There are times of great injustice in the culture around us, in the world around us, where the only proper response is anger. As the scripture says, be angry and do not sin. So there is an anger that doesn't have to be sin. Right? We sometimes think all anger is sin. A lot of anger might be sin because we're sinful people and we tend to take what is good and turn it to what is evil. Right? We, we corrupt it. We twist it. But realize this, right? That the prophet is angry over the evils that he sees. God is right to be angry at you over your sin because he is righteous. He is holy. He's just. And he's these things when he pours out wrath on all those who fail to heed his word. You may not commit such great acts of heinous evil as we see has been recorded in history, right? You may not become a dictator who leads to the uh, genocide of millions, but don't think that your little sin matters little. We think that way. Right? We think it's just a little sin. It's just it's just a little White lie, it's just a, a little this or a little that. It's no big deal. But the only reason we think that way is because we're not holy like God is holy. Our thoughts tend to that direction because we live in sin. We're born in it. What we read out of Psalm 51 this morning. In sin my mother conceived me. It wasn't that David, as he, as he sings that, as he prays that, that doesn't mean that David says, well, my, my mother was... Uh, in an adulterous relationship when she conceived me. No, that's not what he means. He means he knows from the very moment of conception, sin reigned in him. We live in sin. But well would you do to remember the words of Paul, which I've already quoted from Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, what sin earns, is death. And this is not just death here in this life. It's the second death. It's hell. What sin deserves, even the smallest of sins, is death. Sin is really that detestable. And we have to, we have to understand that in the context of the scriptures, right? We have to believe that in the context of the scriptures, right? It's not just me saying that. It's what the scripture says. Who cares what I think about sin in one sense? What does God consider and think about sin? That's the question you need to ask yourself this morning. What does God think about sin? But remember, too, the second half of Romans 6.23. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
Christ Jesus bore the wrath of God on the tree that we might be free from sin's clutches. Listen to this wonderful work of God in Jesus out of Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So friends, this morning, trust in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. Turn to God. Seek to know God in his word. Believe what he tells you in it. The only way that you will have eternal life is through the work of Jesus Christ. This is the only way to be free of sin. But realize here in our passage in Hosea, right? The people of Israel were once a delight in God's eyes, and now they're detestable. They were once full of blessing, and now they'll be empty and barren. Let's see in our last section today, from love to hatred and rejection, from love to hatred and rejection. Verse 15, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. We have another location. Gilgal. It's an Israelite city near to Bethel. Uh, Gilgal is important in the history of the people of Israel because it's where King Saul was anointed king. Uh, also, importantly, it was where King Saul was removed from being king. In 1 Kings uh, uh, 15, sorry, First uh, Samuel 15. Even from old, right? This is where Saul disobeyed God, right? He was supposed to go and destroy the Amalekites, and instead he destroys some of the Amalekites, keeps the king, keeps some of the uh, livestock that he was supposed to destroy, brings it back. He's in Gilgal. Here comes uh, Samuel. He shows up, and uh, God has already told Samuel what has happened, uh, what Saul, how Saul was disobedient. Uh, and Saul just kind of bandies about like everything's okay. It's not, right? So even from of old, Gilgal is a place of disobedience. And what do we know of this city in, in, Israel, uh, in Hosea's day? Every evil of theirs is in there. It's all, you could go to Gilgal was a typical Israelite city. It was filled with evil, filled with sin. We might call Gilgal Sin City. And it typified it. You want to know what, what God is angry about? Go to Gilgal. It'll be evident real quickly. And feel the weight of this verse. What does God say to the people? There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. God says he hates them, that he's not going to love them anymore. And, and one of the things is, is that this is covenantal language, right? Because what is the covenant? What, what do we know? What do we identify about God of the covenant? He's full of steadfast love. He's filled with loving kindness. What does God announce himself to be before Moses? I'm 
full of steadfast love. A refrain we hear over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. God is full of steadfast love towards his people. But they've broken the covenant. And so God says, I'm not going to love you. No more steadfast love. I'm going to treat you like all the other nations. His delight, right? The grapes he found in the wilderness, he's going to cast out into the trash heap. He's done with them. And even that language here where he says, right, I will drive them out of my house. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. It calls back to what we've already seen in Hosea about the uh, the relationship, that metaphor of husband and wife between God and his people. We could go, for instance, to Hosea chapter 2, verse 2. Hosea 2, 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. She's not my wife. And what do you do with a woman woman who is living in your house who's not your wife anymore? You send her out. You cast her out. You drive her out. You throw her stuff on the front lawn and say, get out of here. I never want to see you again. That's what God is saying to the people of Israel. Right? The people are consumed by their sin and they will be consumed for their sin. Even the rulers of the people, right? The, their princes are rebels. Their rulers are rebels. And we've seen again already in Hosea the evil of the kings and how they love their evil. We remember how they assassinated one another. It was a game of who can assassinate who the quickest. That person's king, I don't want to be king, so let's raise an army, let's kill him, and then I can be king. And then the next guy after him says, this guy's king, I don't want him to be king, I want to be king, let's raise an army, let's kill him, and then I can be king. That's, what, that's what's going on. The, the rulers are rebels. They, they lead the people in rebellion. And they'll be consumed. We go to verse 16 and we see, uh, again, another metaphor. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. When Joseph names his second son, he calls him Ephraim. So this is one of the sons of Joseph. And listen to why he names him Ephraim. Genesis 41, 52. Genesis 41, 52. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. If you have footnotes there, your Bible might say something like, Ephraim sounds like in Hebrew making fruitful. So when Joseph calls Ephraim Ephraim, he's saying, I've been made fruitful. And then we come back here to Hosea and we find that this fruitful one, their root is dried up and they shall bear no fruit. They may have been blessed and called Ephraim fruitful. No more. Right? A reversal of everything. A reversal of blessing. Rejection and hatred will be theirs. I will put their beloved children to death, right? It says, it. I will put their beloved children to death. We have this again. Verse 17, we get again, Hosea interjects into the, to the message and says, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. So why? Why all this? Why is God going to do this to his people who are no longer his people 
Why does God bring such terror upon His people? Because sin is detestable in the eyes of the holy God. Because the people have abandoned worship of God. Because God cannot ignore sin. His patience and His mercy has limits. They shall be wanderers among the nations. right? They shall be exiled. And notice here we have wandering again. We go back to uh, the, the beginning. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. The sense of wandering in the wilderness. Finding Israel. The people are going to go back to wilderness. Out of wilderness they came into the land of promise. They're going away from the land of promise and back into the wilderness. From dust they came, and to dust they'll go. And this is weighty stuff. God is love. And what does it take for God to hate? Sin. And sin, realize, friends, that sin may be common. It may be ever-present in your life and in the lives of those around you. But make no mistake, it is detestable. It is a grotesque thing. And what shall God do with this world of sin? What is God going to do? Consume it with fire. Second Peter tells us that. The present age is being, being held up to be consumed by fire. The book of Revelation tells us that. The book of Hebrews tells us that. The, book, the books of the Gospels tells us that. Over and over again, the refrain of the scriptures from, gener- from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation is that sin kills. In Genesis, sin, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. God will deal with sin. Right? This is all that we are born into. We were conceived in sin. We were raised in sin. We live it. We breathe it. We clothe ourselves in it. And sin is detestable before our holy God. And so let's answer the question then, what is sin? All that you do that does not proceed from faith is sin, Paul tells us in the book of Romans. All that you do that does not measure up to God's standard is sin, because that's what sin that word sin, uh, that the idea behind it means, missing the mark. All that is disobedience to God, whether in thought or word or deed, all that is evil, all that is common in this world. But, and this is remarkable, God sent His Son to deal with sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The only way that you can have peace with God, the only way that you can be right with God, the only way that you have any hope beyond this life of sin is in Christ Jesus. And so I implore you today, turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Look to Him. He lived the holy life that you should have but cannot. He died bearing the wrath of God for his people's sins, right? Sin's not his own. He was without sin, but he was made to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. In his rising from the grave, he defeated sin and death forever for his people. There's that beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where is your sting? Death, where's your victory? 
He ascended to the right hand of the Father where He now intercedes for His people. So confess your need for Christ this very day and be saved. Beloved of God, all that Christ did, He did for you. He did that to save you and to which we must proclaim, praise God. Right? Praise God. Brothers and sisters, praise God. And I would add to that, brothers and sisters, do we take sin seriously in our own lives, in the life of our church? Does the world around us see how seriously we take this issue of sin? And what I mean by that is not, do we get out and we say, you're a rotten sinner. You, you have evil in your life you need to deal with. Do we go around bloviating, banding about like a bunch of ruffians, crying about every sin we see in others? It's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, do you take sin seriously in your own life? Not those around you, your own life. Do you seek to put it death, to, to kill it by the power of the Spirit? Or do you coddle it? Do you say, well, this is my little shrine, and I'm just going to put this over here in the corner, and it's going to be, it's going to be fine. It's one of the sad tones that we see in the books of Kings and Chronicles is that you'll see a, a king who is for the Lord, who loves the Lord, who, who seeks to put to, to death these sinful altars and sinful sacrifices. But there's sometimes that, that little, that little added uh, phrase that says, but, but he didn't take away the high places. He left little regions and areas of sin. God is not satisfied with that. As a congregation, will we take sin in ourselves seriously? And I say that because realize that in Hosea's day, the institutions of Israel failed the people. The religious institution, the political institution, the cultural apparatus, all these failed the the normal people of Israel. Because they all pushed, promoted sin, false worship. Church, we cannot be like the institutions of Israel in Hosea's day. And I hate to say that if we look at, by and large, at the American church, I I fear that we are. We fail the people because we don't deal with sin seriously. So let us repent Let us ask God to search and try us to see if there is any sinful way in us. Let us seek to walk in holiness before the Lord. Not because we have some sense that walking in holiness before God is how we earn our salvation. But if we have been saved, how can we do anything but walk in holiness before God? But strive to live as Christ lived. And let us remember the joy of his salvation, right? Let us remember the freedom to which we have been saved by Christ. Let us worship God knowing that he is love. God is love and he loved us. And in his love, he made a covenant with us that shall never be broken. We go back to what the people of Israel needed was a new heart. And what God offers in Christ is a new heart.
one that doesn't have to sin. And if you're in Christ, you have that. So live like it. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us, Lord, for for thinking that sin doesn't matter. Forgive us, Lord, for belittling our sins, for thinking of them as little things. God, forgive us for leaving pockets of sinfulness unaddressed in our lives. And we pray that your spirit would be upon us to bring conviction of our sins. Lord, that, the, that if truly, if there is, if there is a, a part of us that is blinded to the sin in our hearts, in our lives, that you would reveal it so we can confess it, so we can turn from it, so we can turn back to you, so we can have the joy of our salvation. And God, we pray, we pray for those who do not know Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are so blinded by their sin that they think that you are satisfied with them in their sin. Oh Lord, help us. Father, grant mercy and send your spirit to regenerate and renew such persons. Father, whether they are here among us or whether they are out in the community, in our, in our homes, our family members, our acquaintances, our, our, our places of work, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy and that they would turn to you in faith. And God, help us to be bold. Father, to be bold to preach the truth of Christ, that sin is detestable, that you hate it, that you're judging it, that this world will be consumed with fire. But also, Lord, that you are love, that you are merciful and gracious, that you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you keep steadfast love for thousands, that you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. But you will by no means clear the guilty. Oh, Father, help us to believe you and your word. We pray, we entreat, we ask, we plead. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.